What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 238. Today, on the third and final episode on conditioning, we're going to discuss how to dose conditioning. Cardiorespiratory fitness, that is, the ability of the heart, lungs, and circulatory system to support energy production during physical activity, is correlated with health in a dose-dependent manner. Cardiorespiratory fitness can be measured by VO2 max, among many other tests, but the idea here is that the higher an individual's cardiorespiratory fitness level, the lower the risk of developing a number of common medical conditions, such as heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and many types of cancer. Despite the known benefits of high amounts of cardiorespiratory fitness levels, these levels are quite low across the globe. In an effort to improve fitness levels, the current exercise guidelines recommend that all adults complete some combination of at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity conditioning per week, where moderate and vigorous intensity conditioning are defined as activities being three to six or greater than six METs, respectively. METs refers to the amount of energy being used during activity, where one MET corresponds to the amount of energy used at rest and a five met activity, like walking at four miles an hour, requires five times as much energy. Interestingly, the value of a met was derived from measuring the energy expenditure of a single 40-year-old male who is 70 kilograms sitting in a chair. What's more, most folks have no idea what a met is or how hard exercise needs to be in order to qualify as moderate or vigorous, especially as their fitness levels change over a lifetime. This raises yet another barrier to regular participation in exercise at a level that improves health and performance. We know that higher levels of cardiorespiratory fitness correlate well with improved health and performance. And on this week's podcast, we're going to discuss how to program conditioning work to make sure that you're getting the most out of your training. That uh, sort of dad noise breathing on the other side of the line, that's Dr. Austin Baraki, the second most handsome doctor in North America. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Uh, back home from my uh, trip to the Pacific and spent the day teaching cardiology to some second year medical students today. So doing all right. You're just, you're guiding and teaching the future doctors of, uh, of America. And I think that's admirable. So oh, yeah, hats off to you. <laughs> I do wonder, so how much like exercise related stuff do you actually put in the, in your like teaching lesson? Like, I know you probably put it in there a little bit for like examples, you know, you're, you're making analogies and metaphors and stuff. Cause I imagine they're more active than the, your average uh, person, but do you put that in that you drop that in there every so often, some exercise related stuff? Occasionally, but I almost don't have the time to spend a ton of, of, you know, uh, teaching time and resources on that topic. And admittedly, even if I did, uh, medical students are so overwhelmed with all of the pathology that they need to learn that uh, I wonder how much of that would, would register. So it certainly, uh, you know, gets peppered in here and there when it's relevant to the topic I'm, I'm discussing. So for example, if I'm talking about, you know, approach to management of diabetes, it's definitely going to come up. Um, in my lecture from this morning, it was talking about, you know, valvular heart disease, where it's more so like this person probably isn't, isn't able to exercise because they have, you know, an aortic valve that's ruptured or something like that, which they need surgery. So there's a lot, you know, it, it just kind of depends on the, the, the topic that we're discussing. Here's the real question though, because you've been with these students now for, I don't know, a month and a half, almost two months. Have they recognized you from the meme yet? 
<laughs> they, yes. they, do they know that face? Several of them, yes. And they, they know about the podcast and all sorts of other things that they like to make sure I know. So appreciate it. I didn't even put this in the happy talk, but this is this is the first time this has ever happened to me. And guys, look, if you're listening to this podcast and you're just looking for facts and info, just fast forward. You don't need to hear this. But if you're interested in my personal life and what's going on there, well, here you go. Uh, I went on a date uh, last week. And so, yeah, you can hold your applause. I went, went on a, a real date. And, um, you know, things went fine. And uh, we were texting the next day. And she, I see this video pop up on my phone. I'm like, no, I'll get to this. I'll get to this later. It's a video of uh, an, a gentleman who's, you know, probably in his sixth or seventh decade. And he's holding his phone. And in the phone, he's going through his emails. And it's all barbell medicine related stuff. It's her dad. Her dad is like, apparently knows more about me than she does at, at this particular point. And I was like, I think this is the first time that's happened to me. I'm not upset about it. I'm just more like, cool. <laughs> we got yeah, da- dad is team Jordan. Maybe we get her to be team Jordan. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> but uh, th- thanks. If you're listening, hey, th- shout out to you. You're the real MVP. Um, before we get into this week's podcast, again, we're talking about how to dose and how to program conditioning. It's uh, part three of our three-part series on uh, cardio and conditioning. Uh, we do have some live in-person seminars coming up. So at the end of, well, it's next month, end of September, we'll be in Los Angeles for a super seminar, basically combined our pain and rehab seminar with our health and performance seminar. You get the best of both worlds. So if you've been on the fence about coming to one of the barbell medicine seminars and you're like, I don't know which one to choose, you don't have to choose anymore. You can just do both in one weekend. It's in Los Angeles. Uh, that's linked in the description below. Also, we'll have our traditional two-day health and performance seminar in October, that'll be uh, at Dr. Alan Thrall's gym, Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California. And then in January, we'll be in both Perth and Sydney, Australia. So if you're down under or could be down under or, you know, somewhere thereabouts, come come hang out with us uh, in January. The weather's going to be beautiful. If you like koalas also, they're there. So, you know, it's a, double, it's a twofer, if you will. Uh, also, hey, this weekend in the United States is uh, Labor Day, and uh, we may or may not have some Labor Day stuff uh, coming your way. So if you're not subscribed to our email list, uh, you should do that. You just go over to the website, hang out for like 20 or 30 seconds, and a little pop-up will uh, pop up. Give us your email, and uh, you get add to the list and all the latest happenings with respect to Labor Day in this particular case, uh, newsletters, which are just highly focused on information um, that are not published anywhere else. Check that out. Uh, I'd really like to uh, connect with you there. Otherwise, you know, man, any other uh, updates for the uh, listeners at home, Dr. B? Nothing pressing at the moment. Just life is, you know, going on. Just a walking sack of water going around, responding to stimuli, just recycling oxygen. Okay. Both external and internal. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah that that respiration though that's very timely because we're going to talk about more about <laughs> respiration here uh i have no updates either other than for whatever reason and i'm not trying to tempt the barbell gods here or whatever but i'm i'm relatively strong and uh me gusta i think i think my plan here is that for the next two months or so just really prioritize getting as strong as humanly possible see where that goes and then uh probably end of october complete shift over to more I want to focus on moto for next year. So I'm like already thinking about how will I change things? I might only drop down to like lifting twice a week so I can spend more time on the bike. As I was like kind of reviewing for this particular podcast, what do actual like elite level endurance athletes 
do? How do they train? I'm like, that's a lot of training time. And then I think about yeah. what, how I spend my own training time. I'm like, well, it's probably, it's similar amounts total, but I would just have to dedicate, like I couldn't do both just from a time yeah. standpoint. I really couldn't train for like 40 hours a week and sure. then be like, hopefully I recover. <laughs> so all right, we'll so I'll just look forward to October for myself then. And then that's uh, right. Yeah. You know, it's a transfer of power. <laughs> it's a transfer of power. It's the same thing. Not, we both can't be strong at the same time. When people are like, why don't you two compete at the same meet? And like, honestly, I think what would happen is we would both sign up for a meet and we would both be terrible. That's the only way that both of us could like show up. We, we'd both just be underperforming. And uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's the plan. And uh, you know, if I end up liking endurance, that endurance type training, I don't know, then what? Nah, 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 nah. We'll not talk like that. Okay, so let's pop into this week's podcast again. This is how to dose, how to program conditioning. And if this is the first part of our uh, podcast series that you've actually listened to, um, go back and check out the first two parts. Probably need that background information to really make sense of this. But you could just listen to this one as a standalone and probably pick up, I'd say, 80% of what's going on. So, to start the discussion, let's cover some general principles regarding exercise programming. And we'll start out with the sort of fitness fatigue model. If you're familiar uh, with Roger Bannister, this stuff kind of comes from his thinking and, and later sort of extrapolations of that. The fitness fatigue model effectively goes like this. You have what's known as the external load that is applied to the individual. These, this is the training stimulus, as we call it. All the nuts and bolts of a training program, including the type of exercise or mode of exercise, the volume of that exercise and or the duration, if we're talking about um, cardio, the intensity of that exercise, rest periods, et cetera. All the things on paper that make a program a program. That is the training stimulus, also known as external load, what is applied externally to the individual. That gets applied to the individual and what they experience is the training stress, also sometimes called the internal load. And we can sort of quantify what that experience is by looking at heart rate changes, by looking at rate ratings of perceived exertion, RPE, uh, for like a given task, like how hard is that set of squats, for example. Uh, you could also rate the, in, you know, how difficult an entire session was. And we call that session RPE. There are other ways to track this as well. But the point here is that you could apply the same sort of training stimulus, the external load, the program to two different people, and they could have wildly different sort of experiences. One person might say, ah, you know, I rate that whole session RP5, wasn't that hard, whatever. It's the same average intensity, the same volume, the same types of exercise, the same proximity to failure, same rest periods. Whereas another person might rate that session RP10, like that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And that kind of jibes with most people's personal experience. They're like, my friend did this program and they loved it. And I did this program and I hated it. I thought everything was super hard or whatever, or vice versa. It's just that whatever the unique characteristics that make you you uh, will alter how you not only uh, respond to a program, but also how you experience it. And so to incorporate that into this sort of fitness fatigue programming model, the dose of the training stimulus, that is the nuts and bolts of the training program, must match the individual's fitness level and their personal response. Uh, if, you, if the dose is too high, for example, or it is the wrong type of dose, you're going to get uh, a mismatch between fitness adaptations and fatigue. That's why this is called the fitness fatigue model. Effectively, anything that causes a training stress will drive both fitness adaptations, that's positive changes in physiological and psychological sort of characteristics related to performance, and while also simultaneously causing fatigue. That's sort of the negative uh, physiological and psychological sequelae to activity. So the dose of training 
must match the individual's fitness level and their personal response to that, how they experience it. Um, also, the sort of training stimulus must be progressively loaded. And we did a whole podcast and wrote an extensive article on this. And I, I think that's one of our most viewed articles. So that makes me happy. But this is like, there's this idea that it's really progressive overload and that things must become harder over time. And I think that's just a misunderstanding. It doesn't necessarily get harder over time, but rather the training stimulus must match the individual where they're at in order to continue to provide the same amount of training stress, the same amount of experienced training stress. And so it's kind of like that Greg Lamont quote, like it doesn't get easier, you just go faster. It should really be the same level of hardness as you go along. Um, and if it's getting noticeably harder, you're not progressively loading or progressively overloading. All you're doing is just making it harder. And it, it just doesn't match. If we look back over our own training careers, you know, ideally, as you said, the training stimulus should stay relatively, or the, the, the training st stress that the person's experiencing should stay relatively similar over the course of their training career, assuming that you've found something that they respond to, or you tweak it appropriately over time to maintain that training response. I think in our situation, or definitely in my own situation, if I look back, it definitely has not gotten harder over time. It's actually gotten quite a bit easier over time. And that's mainly because I trained way too hard in the beginning of the, uh, of our training career went too close to failure. Did, you know, I remember squatting an absolute death grind of a set of like 365 for a set of five or something like that. And nowadays, you know, much more often routinely squatting well into the 500s, deadlifting well into the 600s, and the sets are not nearly as difficult or taxing as that one top set intensity day of five that I did at like 365 and like barely got out from under that bar alive. And that's just because I was training like an idiot following programming paradigms that didn't really make sense at the time in terms of believing that, oh, it just had to keep getting harder. I had to force the weight up to generate a training response rather than using a training method that generates a training response. And then if, the, if I'm responding, the weights will be able to go up at the same, you know, general level of effort or difficulty. And so as a result, nowadays, my training, probably both of our training, I would say is relatively speaking, actually a bit easier compared to what it was uh, in the past when we were training with different mindsets and approaches to it. I would say it's easier with respect to like the proximity to failure in that yeah. most of our sets are not taken nearly as close to failure on the compound lifts. So squat, yeah. bench press, deadlift, stuff like that. It's harder in a different way because we're doing more of it. And so it, it's just a different type of hard. But the whole point here is that you you get stronger and then you get to lift more weight not that you lift more weight and get stronger. As long as you're within this sort of normal range of intensities that quote unquote work to make you stronger, like you're doing enough weight, adding the five pounds doesn't necessarily make you stronger. It's more a demonstration of you in fact getting stronger. Similarly, because we're talking about cardio and conditioning here, you get more cardiorespiratory fitness and then you can go faster, longer, et cetera, at the same relative level of difficulty. If you think about trying to improve your like 400 meter time or whatever on a, a track, you know, track event, it's like, okay, you're going to go run at 110% of this pace for 400 meters. It's like, like you can't do that. You know, so yeah, if you just run this next 400 faster, that'll make you faster. And it's like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously there, there's, there can be benefits to doing some like overspeed training for a shorter distance, just like there's some benefit to doing slower training, uh, for longer distances. And we'll kind of discuss that in the rest of the podcast. But the whole point here is that within the fitness and fatigue model, um, we're trying to get the right amount of training dose 
which is really just the experienced training stress to drive the uh, fitness adaptations we care about without outkicking our coverage with respect to fatigue. And over time, that sort of training dose is going to become greater in order to drive the same amount of experienced training stress. That's how you progressively load it. So the fitness adaptations that we're seeking here, uh, particularly with respect to conditioning, is improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness levels. Uh, yes, that it both improves health and performance. And the amount of cardiorespiratory fitness improvement is correlated to improvement in health trajectory and performance in conditioning dependent tasks. There's a similar relationship with uh, strength improvement and health trajectory, particularly regarding blood pressure and blood sugar management. We've talked about this on some of our research reviews. Effectively, the folks who had the biggest improvement in 1RM performance had the largest or most marked reduction in resting blood pressure, uh, the best improvement in how they handled blood sugar. And I think that's probably the same here with respect to cardiorespiratory fitness. And we kind of know that relationship because there's a dose-dependent relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness and health trajectory, meaning that the higher somebody's cardiorespiratory fitness levels are, effectively, the lower risk they have of developing heart disease, type 2 diabetes, things of that nature. And so the program should ideally produce the largest improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness over time, and those are the adaptations that we're seeking. So therefore, conditioning work that does not generate cardiorespiratory fitness improvements tend to not improve health or performance as much as those who do. And like, I, I feel like that's a, you know almost a circular statement in a way, but it's like, yeah, sure, almost any amount of physical activity is likely better than none, but we can do better than that. And that's kind of what this podcast is about. So if the programming, if the uh, training stimulus, if you will, the nuts and bolts of the training program, if it's too little as far as amount or dose, it's too easy, that's really not enough to drive fitness adaptations. If it's too much, too big of a dose, or if it's too hard and the dose is too big, uh, that's going to cause too much fatigue. And there's other risks there, like risks of injury, burnout, et cetera. So in short, in summary, we need to provide the right dose of conditioning for the individual in order to maximize their ROI, the return on investment for exercise. And so we need to know how to manipulate the dose in order to suit the individual, in order to meet them where they're at. Um, the you know public guidelines are what they are, but as far as how they apply to each individual based on their current levels of fitness is going to vary markedly. And we'll kind of discuss that. Austin, any comments on that sort of fitness fatigue model. I know we've beaten that to death, but I, I, if somebody came in to this first podcast, they're like fitness fatigue model, what in the heck? I thought it was just stress recovery adaptation. It's like, well, that's kind of baked in here, but we think about it a little bit differently. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is something that's worth hammering. And for people who are interested in really, you know, uh, the, the details of our thoughts and position on this, the, the article that you described, um, on progressive loading is, is one that probably you know, uh, puts that in, in writing the best and has an accompanying podcast to, to discuss it as well. But definitely recognizing that every kind of physical training, you know, uh, session that you do or task that you do has a potential benefit, a potential cost. And we're trying to kind of optimize that, that balance insofar as we can over time to generate the response we want without digging ourselves into too deep of a hole and, and, and uh, make it such that we can be flexible over time and match that dosage um, to where the person's at in terms of their overall fitness and then their readiness on, on any given day. Yep. Yeah, I agree. So the current guidelines effectively state that an individual should do, uh, you know, the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity conditioning or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity activity or some combination thereof in order to yield 
500 to 1,000 met minutes per week of conditioning activity. That's effectively the dose that they're describing. And the dose is manipulated or, uh, you know, scalable or otherwise malleable, changeable by adjusting the intensity, uh, by adjusting the volume, by adjusting the frequency. And so we need to address those three sort of programming parameters in order to hone in on the correct dose for a particular individual. We'll start with intensity. Now, there are multiple ways to describe intensity. We need a common language here specifically related to conditioning. And uh, there are multiple different ways to do this. In the last podcast, we talked about RPE. Uh, and so that's where we'll start, a little brief review. Uh, basically, again, the guidelines are talking about moderate and vigorous intensity conditioning. And so you can use RPE to sort of figure out, hey, is this thing hard enough to count as a moderate intensity conditioning activity? Or is this hard enough to count as a vigorous intensity conditioning activity? The RPE kind of cutoffs using a 1 to 10 scale uh, as 5 to 6 is sort of the moderate cutoff. So something that's five to, uh, that you would rate as a 5 or a 6 on a 1 to 10 scale as far as how hard it is would basically correlate to a moderate intensity activity. If it's RPE 7, 8, or higher, that would be a vigorous intensity conditioning activity. Uh, this is all based on breathing rate, so how hard someone's breathing. And really, the way that's sort of analyzed is a talk test, not really as breaths per minute. You don't have to count like, how many breaths did I get in that last minute or in that sort of fraction of a minute? It's really how hard it is to talk. So RP five to six, that moderate intensity cutoff is where breathing becomes labored enough, hard enough to make it somewhat difficult to, to carry on a conversation. And I just tell people, yeah, you can speak, but really in short sentence fragments, not really complete sentences, can't sing, for example. Uh, and then above that RP seven, eight or higher, conversation is nearly impossible. You really, you might be able to utter like one or two, one word, something like that, but otherwise it's just impossible. Uh, and so those would be the two cutoffs using RPE. And I think for most folks listening to this or most folks who are sort of communicating conditioning targets to their clients who are not like highly trained athletes or really like pushing the limit with respect to how much training they're doing or seeking the highest levels of performance, that's probably good enough. You could just turn this off, use RPE. That's probably good enough. And in fact, I would make a push and maybe we'll do this at some point. Like if we were rewriting the, the uh, physical activity guidelines, I would not use METs or MET minutes. I would use RPE and then some specific amount uh, uh, done per week. But at met minutes as a description of the dose, I just feel like, again, if you polled a, a hundred doctors on like, hey, what's a met? <laughs> what's a met minute? And how would you, you know, communicate that to a patient? They would look at you like you had two heads. They'd be like, I, uh, I don't know. I've heard that. We use that in practice, but like, I don't actually know what it means. Yeah, I think that, you know, that communication is more, uh, I don't know if an artifact is the right word or a consequence of the way the, the kind of the, the research looking at this question uh, th those methods. In other words, in kind of like, you know, epidemiologic work, looking at, you know, exercise, um, dosing, intensity, volume, et cetera, as it relates to health uh, outcomes, that's a common way that this can be kind of stratified a little bit. So it's almost like these guidelines, insofar as they use the met minute, you know, kind of parameter to communicate it, maybe more useful for, uh, you know, relaying this to other researchers <laughs> than it is for clinical practice and translation to patients. Yeah, I, I think uh, they, you know, when trying to look at like, okay, how big of a dose of exercise is enough to drive some of these favorable adaptations we're looking for with respect to health trajectory? 
you needed a way to standardize the research, right? And it's like, all right, so we need to come up with a list of all the activities that could possibly be done and ascribe them some sort of score. Like, okay, how, what kind of dose was that based on the intensity and the duration? So like the volume <laughs> and the intensity. And so you can generate that using met minutes. But again, it, the metabolic cost, the met cost for an activity is based off one dude <laughs> like, I just don't know how reliable that is. Well, I, in fact, I know that it's not very reliable. Um, and so there's some problems there. And I'm not looking for perfection. I don't want like perfect to be the enemy of good here. I just think that uh, if you are, are at all interested in maximizing somebody's, you know, again, I'll, I'll use the, the term again, ROI from exercise, we could probably do a better job than than METs here. So the we used, we talked about RPE again. RP five to six is sort of like that moderate that qualifies as moderate. And if you go up uh, uh, a rung in the ladder, RP seven or higher, um, that's probably vigorous intensity activity. That's all, all measured by the uh, sort of uh, talk test or breathing rate. Um, and again, that's only for like sustained uh, either uh, moderate intensity conditioning or um, sort of interval work or whatever. It's not just like putting away plates, for example, at the end of a workout or like sitting in a sauna that uh, wouldn't necessarily count as conditioning activity. The next sort of way that you can rank this or sort of delineate between, all right, this is light activity, this is moderate activity, this is uh, vigorous activity is called the three zone model, three zones here. So there's a low, moderate, and high zone. So the low zone, uh, they call this, uh, again, light uh, condition activity, light activity. Um, there's a couple different proxies here, but as far as how this plays out via um, sort of testing, it's um, below lactate, the lactate threshold one, that sort of aerobic threshold. We talked about lactate in the previous episode. Um, speech is still comfortable here. It's usually RPE four or less if using that one to 10 scale, and it's usually less than 65% of your max heart rate. We'll talk about heart rate as far as how to calculate your max heart rate, how to test your max heart rate, stuff like that uh, here shortly. But it's pretty light activity. Now, there's a broad range here because you can think about an activity just like uh, normal walking, for example, compared to like, you know, pretty brisk walking, for example, or being on an exercise bike. All of that would kind of fall into uh, this sort of zone, you know, zone one in this three zone model. But um, in general, again, this is below that first lactate threshold where blood lactate tends to rise above baseline. Um, again, speech is still comfortable. RP4 or less, 65% of heart rate max or lower. Uh, that's kind of all the stuff here. Uh, and that would not qualify as moderate intensity uh, conditioning activity. The next zone, so zone two, is moderate uh, the sort of moderate uh, conditioning level. Uh, this is between lactate threshold one and lactate threshold two. Again, lactate threshold one is when lactate rises above sort of baseline. Lactate threshold two is like the maximum uh, amount of lactate that you can produce and still get rid of. So like it's, it's the highest steady state where if you go any faster or harder than that, it really starts to ramp up. It's not comfortable to talk in this sort of phase but uh, still possible. So again, RP five to six, like we said before, this is usually somewhere in that 65 to 75% of your max heart rate. Uh, and this would correlate to like three to six METs, which is what the current guidelines sort of uh, uh, categorize moderate intensity 
conditioning activity to be. The third and final zone in this three-zone model is high uh, or vigorous intensity uh, conditioning activity. This is stuff above the second lactate threshold, RP7, 8, or above. It's greater than 75% of your heart rate max. There's really no accepted definition here, so it's kind of just made up, but talking is not really possible. And yeah, I'll be the first to admit, though, the heart rate data stuff that I'm, I've been citing is, is not great. It's really just kind of made up here. And uh, so between that and then actually, you know, looking at some other data on this where they really try to hone in on, okay, well, what would really count as like light intensity conditioning activity? They're talking about stuff like VO2 peak, a percentage of VO2 peak, like 50% of that would be like the bottom level, the floor of zone one in this three zone model. And that'll go up to the first lactate threshold. Uh, and so you have to be able to measure somebody's lactate and know their VO2 peak, which is quite unrealistic to do outside of a lab. Um, and so I'm not sure how practical this stuff is using the three zone model. It's just more of a way to conceptualize like here are the three different zones and like, uh, you know, you could potentially use these for programming decisions if you knew this data, but I don't know that, uh, it, you know, collecting this data and then relegating it to just this three zone model is the best way to use said data. And so for me, I'm like, I would almost avoid this three zone model completely other than again just knowing that it exists and knowing that when people are talking about training in different zones that there are multiple different models here to discuss zone training there's a three zone model there's a five zone model there's zone eight zone model like there's just different stuff here okay so moving on five zone model and this is the stuff that's probably got the most airplay uh, as of late when people talk about zone two training they're not talking about the three zone model they're talking about the five zone model okay so to start there's no standardized or agreed upon cutoff here for the five different zones um and i'll communicate them uh in both their descriptions so like really the, what they kind of function as with respect to programming and then also heart rate data um just to kind of give people a lay of the land so again uh, zone one here on this five zone model is known as the active recovery sort of zone, which as a sidebar, I don't actually know what active recovery is. <laughs> and here's what, here's what I mean by that. If something is, if exercise is difficult enough to drive fitness adaptations, it's also difficult enough to create some level of fatigue, right? So active recovery is just kind of a misnomer. You could just call it like light exercise, I guess, if you want, but that is going to be confused with like <laughs> exercise not sufficient to drive these adaptations that are commensurate with health and performance. And so, I don't know, I would just call it low intensity exercise. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a term that it's a term that I've heard, you know, for many years, including back in my swimming days and things like that. And we usually called those days that were just straight up, not hard, but we were just moving around and trying to feel good, <laughs> trying to feel better when you got out of the water than when you did, when you got in, which was rare otherwise. <laughs> so yeah, you can just call it therapeutic exercise, I guess. But, uh, yeah. this would generally be in that sort of 60 to 75% of the heart rate, uh, max heart rate, that sort of zone, uh, zone two. Again, this is the zone that's getting all the airplay. Oh, I got to do all, you know, zone two training. Um, this is the aerobic endurance zone. This is usually 75 to 83% of max heart rate. Um, this kind of butts up against slightly maybe overlapping that first lactate threshold. Again, that's where lactate rises above um, sort of baseline values. Uh, in comparison to the three zone model, zones one and zone two of the five zone model effectively encapsulate 
zone one of the three zone model. And so if you're trying to compare the two or like overlaying these two different graphs, that's what you would see here. Uh, zone three is known as the intense aerobic or tempo zone. This is like 83 to 90% of heart rate max. So this is just above the first lactate threshold. Again, that's where lactate goes above baseline levels for the first time during activity. Um, Zone four is the next zone. This is 90 to 94% of your max heart rate. And zone three and zone four match up to zone two in the three zone model. And so if you're trying to like, again, paint this picture, three zones, uh, the three zone model is, you know, light, moderate, vigorous. Zones one and zone two of the five zone model would be in the light sort of uh, zone for the three zone model. Zones three and zone four of the five zone model would be in zone two of the three zone model. And that's all under the second lactate threshold where, again, it's the maximum amount of lactate that you can basically produce while still getting rid of it, still clearing it without it spiking um, to much higher levels. Again, zone four, 90 to 94% of the heart rate max. Um, and again, it's just under that or second lactate threshold. Zone five is just above that second lactate threshold. Um, that's 94 to 100% of your max heart rate. Um, and this would be uh, sort of the beginning of zone three in uh, the three zone model. There's also zone six, seven, and eight, which refers to very high intensity sprints, anaerobic capacity, and strength training. But uh, for the purposes of conditioning work, particularly that applies to improving cardiovascular fitness, zone eight or strength training would not really make a big difference unless you are very, very undertrained from a cardiorespiratory fitness standpoint. We talked about that um, in the last podcast. All right. So we talked about using RPE to sort of demarcate, hey, this is moderate intensity uh, or vigorous intensity conditioning work. We talked about the three zone model where that kind of lines up when we talked about the five zone model uh, and we talked about heart rate throughout the whole thing. So let's discuss heart rate, you know, how to figure it out and whatever. So heart rates, uh, people tend to use this old equation, 220 minus age, to get their max heart rate. It's attributed to this large review on physical activity and heart disease from Fox et al. in the 70s. Interestingly, the data from that original manuscript did not actually support the 220 minus age formula. The authors of that review actually said, no single line will adequately represent the data on the apparent decline of maximal heart rate with age. The formula maximum heart rate equals 220 minus age in years defines a line not far from many of the data points. So they're like, eh, this kind of works, I guess. So go forth and prosper. Uh, a second research group much later actually reviewed the original manuscript data and combined it with additional data sets on maximum heart rate and physical activity. And they came up with a new formula that seems to be the best one we have at present to sort of predict someone's maximum heart rate. And they use the formula 208 minus 0.7 times age. And so you can write that down. Again, it's your max heart rate can be predicted by using the formula 208 minus 0.7 times age. So you multiply 0.7 times your age, subtract that from 208, and you can get a prediction of what your max heart rate is. But there's going to be some error there. The authors suggest it might be you know, a six beat per minute error um, in most folks. Although if you're highly trained or very undertrained, I would expect that error to be significantly greater than six beats per minute. And you would just imagine that with a highly trained endurance athlete, their max heart rate might be much, much higher, uh, a very undertrained or somebody who's previously unwell medical conditions, something like that, or on certain medications, their uh, heart rate max is going to be much, much lower. So that's like how to um, calculate it, how to predict it. If you're using some wearable tech, like a watch, like a Apple watch, for example, people ask us this all the time. They're like, hey, is my watch data 
my heart rate data, is that like any good? Can I use that? So the mean absolute percentage error, which basically refers to like how far is this thing off percentage-wise compared to uh, like the gold standard in this case uh, would be some sort of telemetry. Um, the Apple Watch has a mean percentage error of less than 10% for heart rate. Most of the error is like 1% to 7%. The majority of the studies look at that, which is Not fine. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, way worse for things like step count. Uh, way, way worse for energy expenditure. We're talking about greater than 30% mean absolute percentage error. And you're like, okay, so just don't use that for the, these things. Um, so you can use your watch, wearable tech, uh, to you know um, look at what your heart rate is currently. But the heart rate max thing on the Apple Watch, for example, still uses that original formula, 220 minus age. And so I don't know. I haven't played around with the settings on my Apple Watch to like actually change my heart rate max um, using this new formula at 208 minus 0.7 times age. But uh, yeah, just know that there's error at kind of every level here. And to the extent that's meaningful, I don't know. Uh, I think you can I think you can actually adjust the actual zone boundaries on the uh, Apple devices, even if it does not work to let you change the formula or whatever your max heart rate is. I haven't looked at that either, but I'm pretty sure that the zone kind of boundaries that it gives you can be adjusted. Yep. Yeah. So, and for their zones one through five, they zone one, they say that's 50 to 60% of your max heart rate, um, which, you know, we just said it was 60 to 75%. So significantly lower on the Apple heart, uh, the Apple watch, um, for zone two, they calculate that as 60 to 70% of the max heart rate. We said it was 75 to 83%. Um, for zone three, Apple calculates it to be 70 to 80% of your max heart rate. We said it was 83 to 90%. Uh, zone four, Apple says it's 80 to 90%. We said it was 90 to 94%. And zone five, they say 90 to 100%. And we said it was 94 to 100%. So, some differences there, again, uh, not outside the realm of, of sort of an acceptable range. Again, you, you read different authors, you, uh, particularly if they use different exercise modes, whether it's rowing, cycling, treadmill, et cetera, you're going to get a whole bunch of different results. And at the end of the day, the stuff tends to be kind of made up uh, anyway. You know, uh, people are like, oh, that seems like a level that would correlate to this particular blood lactate level or ventilation threshold or something like that. Uh, but the whole idea here is a way to discuss intensity in a repeatable fashion so that you can dose the training appropriately. And so I don't know that we need to, you know, get too far into the weeds on heart rate max and how to calculate any differences between uh, different methods, but rather conceptually understanding that we need to be able to manipulate intensity in some sort of repeatable, consistent manner in order to hone in on the correct training dose. That's kind of the, the main takeaway here. Now, that's all predicted heart rate max, heart rate stuff from a, from a watch or whatever. What if you uh, wanted to test it? Probably the best test that I've come across here that people can do at home um, or uh, where they don't actually require that much equipment is called the Kogan's field test. And uh, he didn't call it like a lactate threshold or power measurement or whatever. He just called it a functional threshold heart rate. And to me, this is similar to like testing your 1RM. It's a field test. You're basically seeing how strong you are with a 1RM test. This is telling you, hey, what's the maximum heart rate you can sustain um, up to what we think is sort of that second lactate threshold or sort of anaerobic uh, threshold. So here's the way you do the test. It's a 20-minute test. You can do it uh, on a bicycle. You can do it on a rower. You can do it on a treadmill. The whole point is each type of exercise mode 
So each different type is going to have a different sort of max heart rate that you can sort of maintain. And the less amount of muscle mass that you use for a given uh, exercise mode is going to actually generate more lactate than uh, a exercise mode that uses uh, more muscle mass. Effectively, you're not able to distribute all the force production requirements over more muscle mass. And so you're just going to have a differential there between, you know, rowing versus cycling versus running versus, you know, whatever else, ski erg <laughs> for swimming. It would hard be hard to do on swimming because you'd have to like stop periodically to like figure out what your heart rate is, or you just have to download your heart rate data after the swimming test. But it's yeah. a 20 minute test. <laughs> it's a 20 minute test. Um, and the idea is you try to figure out what is your maximum sustainable heart rate during this sort of max effort test. And then if you subtract 5% from that, that gives you your sort of, uh, this functional threshold heart rate that you could use, um, for the different exercise zones. You could also do an eight minute test, same sort of thing. You just, as far as you can go as fast as you can go and still like sustain that effort and you subtract 10%. There's five minute tests, one minute tests. The shorter they get, the less sort of reliable they become. Similar to a 1RM test, the higher the reps get, the less reliable that actually transfers over to a true 1RM test. Um, so the way you would do this for a 20 minute sort of uh, test, you would warm up for about 15 to 20 minutes the general sort of rule I give people is to do longer than you think. The idea is you don't just hop into this completely cold and then uh, because you'll you'll likely uh, either go out too fast or not be warmed up enough to sustain an actual pace. So after your warm up, 15 to 20 minutes, again, longer than you think, the idea is you would start here at a high pace, but one you could go faster on. So you would rate this RP7 or so for the first five minutes. Every five minute sort of mark, the you kind of ask yourself this question, can I go faster? How do I feel? And if so, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. If no, may, try to maintain the pace. Most people will go out too fast, particularly if they haven't done this before, and then they burn out by minute 10 or whatever. And then you got to do the test again at some other point if you were trying to get some more accurate heart rate data. And so the idea here is to download all that heart rate data. You can put it into an Excel and then take the average of it over the 20 minutes and subtract 5%. That gives you this sort of functional threshold heart rate. Um, if you can't download or you know extract all of the heart rate data, then I would just do it at the end of every minute. Just jot down your heart rate and be like, okay, this is what it was at one minute. So you then have 20 data points, average all of that, subtract 5% if you're doing this 20-minute test, and that gives you this functional threshold heart rate. And uh, Joel Friel, he uh, is the guy behind Training Peaks, big cycling coach, uh, read a lot of his stuff, and I, I do like his books. Particularly, they seem to be pretty accessible for folks who aren't like exercise physiologists. And uh, I also like that he pokes fun at exercise physiologists the whole way through. Like It's like, he'll have a whole paragraph like, now if a sports scientist read this, they'd you know, have my head. And it's like, well, yeah, we understand that you're writing it for a different audience. But the way he uses this, so once you've found your functional threshold heart rate by doing this field test, he described zone one as being 81% approximately of your functional threshold heart rate. Um, zone two would be 82 to 89% of your functional threshold heart rate. Zone three would be 90 to 95% of your functional threshold heart rate. Zone four, 94 to 99% of your functional threshold heart rate. And zone five would be, you know, like 100 to 107% 
of your functional threshold heart rate. So above that top end level, which makes sense. If you think about the five zone training model, we just talked about zones one and zone two are kind of below that first lactate threshold zone three and zone four between zones, uh, lactate threshold one and lactate threshold two, and then zone five being above that level. So it's faster than you could effectively go and maintain. That's kind of all makes sense. So we got multiple different models here. And I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, dude, that's a lot of zones like WTF mate. So let's compare three zones and five zones and maybe settle on a model to sort of look at training intensity. So this one particular study actually just came out. I paid for this study. I want you to know, Austin, I, I paid my own hard-earned money for this. You never ask me for these kind of things. I have uh, like institutional library access. I can probably pull these things, but I know you don't want to bother me. It's okay. <laughs> I, that is true. That's exactly true. Also, I feel like I'm stimulating the economy. I'm giving back. I'm also- No, you're not. You're stimulating <laughs> Elsevier, who does not need to be stimulated. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. These billion-dollar <laughs> companies that uh, uh, thrive on volunteer work. Hey, we submitted this paper for free, and yeah. uh, we'll review your papers for free. That's maybe <laughs> for another another podcast but yeah. in any case they, they looked at rowers who uh, these are elite level rowers uh in the under 23 category so they're mostly late teens early 20s um over a four-month training period during this four-month training period the average training load looked like this they did five to seven sessions per week of on the water rowing they did twice per week erg rowing so they're on a you know concept two rower, something like that. They did three to five times per week cross training. So they're running, they're on a treadmill, they're on a bike, they're on a ski erg, something like that. And they lifted weights three times per week. There's 15 total athletes, eight, eight men, seven women. They were all elite level performers. And they basically compared uh, using a three zone model to a five zone model for how it sort of correlated with different performance metrics, not only like performance and just a 2K row test, but also things like L, uh, lactate threshold number two. So effectively, um, which model better predicted changes here and why? Uh, okay. So the, the first interesting thing here was the training distribution. Okay. So the training distribution between the three zone and five zone was actually pretty similar. In the three zone model, 80% of these athletes training took place in zone one in that sort of light activity sort of zone. So before below the first lactate threshold, 13% of it was in zone two, which is between lactate threshold one and lactate threshold two, that moderate intensity sort of zone. And 6% of it was in zone three. So above that vigorous zone. When you look at the five zone model and how that sort of um, categorized their training intensity, 45% of it was in zone one, 35% of it was in zone two. And so if you combine those two together to compare it to the three zone model, again, 80% of their training <laughs> happened in zone one uh, of the three zone model. 13% uh, of their training was in zone three, 4.4% was in zone four, and 1.9% was in zone five. Um, when you look at actually how this correlated to results, there were significant improvements in the uh, lactate threshold number two. Again, that's the basically the highest pace highest intensity effort you can sustain without blood lactate going up uh, exponentially or unchecked. Um, and there was a significant improvements in 2K row performance. There was a positive correlation uh, between those factors and the time spent in zone two of the five zone model. Um, there was also a, a good correlation with that lactate threshold number two and time spent in the zone four of the five zone model. And it was only possible to capture the relationships between the different training zones by using the five zone model. So for example, if you looked at the three zone model and how that correlated to performance, zone one training 
where, you know, the three zone, if you looked at this training with the three zone model, they did 80% of their training there. There was actually a negative correlation with their uh, lactate threshold number two uh, markers. But really, this was only uh, uh, when they kind of reanalyzed it using the five zone model, it was really only the time spent in zone one of the five zone model. So effectively, that was too low to really generate the cardiorespiratory fitness responses. And so the way I take this is that if you're going to go through the trouble of either predicting your max heart rate using the formula, measuring it using a field test or whatever, or even messing around with zones at all in your training, use the five zone model. It just it just gives you a more accurate picture of like what you're doing um, and sort of eliminate some of the noise between like, well, is zone one of the three zone models that good or bad? It's like, it's probably good if we're talking about zone two of the five zone model, as you get closer and closer to that first lactate threshold. It seems that it just gives you a bit more granularity for application. I mean, contrast it like with an example from strength training. If we told people, you know, you should do most of your strength training in lower intensities and then a small amount in higher intensities, people would be like, what, the, what does that mean? You know, um, compared with if, you know, we, we broke it down even further into say the range of, you know, sub 60% intensity, 60 to 75% intensity, 75 to 90% intensity, and greater than 90% of one RM intensity or something like that. That'd be much more useful to describe the distribution of training volume from a strength training standpoint. And that additional granularity can be helpful as long as you don't take it super, super, super far, you know, with like nine zones or something like that. And we're doing like, you know, 3% of one RM increments all the way from zero to a hundred. So there's a kind of a happy medium of the level of granularity that can be useful uh, and applicable in practice. Yeah, that's like, I think when you read the data that like high intensity resistance training in general is better for strength improvement than low intensity. And then you read the paper and it's like, yep, high intensity is defined as anything more than 65% of your 1RM. Right. You're like, <laughs> that's not terribly helpful because it's not granular enough. What you would want to know yeah. is, is 70 to 80% significantly better than 60 to 70%? Or is 80 to 90% significantly better than 70 to 80%? You'd want some more granularity. Um, further, Adding something like a proximity to failure for resistance training also makes a difference. Are we talking about 70 to 80% at RP9? Are we talking about 70 to 80% at RP7? Like, what, you know, how does this all shake out? So, yeah, I think having some added granularity, if you're going to go that route, is useful. Again, for the general public and for people who are like, you know, currently not meeting the, the physical activity guidelines with respect to cardiorespiratory fitness training, I think you can just use RPE. But if you're going to use heart rate stuff like, hey, let's just use the five zone model and uh, you might need to listen to this a couple times and start, stop just to like write some of this stuff down. It will be an article form at some point. It's just not there yet. Uh, but I will say this before we kind of move on and, and not talk about zones nearly as much. Whenever I hear somebody just say zone two, I'm like, you, uh, you know what that is? You, uh, you're pretty confident that uh, you can define that? and really talk about it, you know, at length with exactly what that means, because my impression is that, in fact, n no, uh, most folks cannot, especially because they're not delineating between zones, or, you know, the three zone model and a five zone model, for example, or anything to do with like heart rate stuff. And further, not like making the caveat that, yeah, heart rate stuff's going to vary based on mode, based on the individual and, you know, their current fitness levels, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I just think that in general, when people talk about zones, you know, one, zone two, zone three, zone four, zone five. I'm like, I, uh, I just, I have questions. I have questions here. <laughs> Do you guys ever use that in swimming? You ever talk about that with your swimming training? 
Uh, we used a, I think we were just maybe viewed as stupid or something. We just used the color system. So it was like, <laughs> it was like white, uh, was, you know, our warm up and pink and red and blue and purple. I think that, and it was similar in terms of like how it correlated, but ultimately what they were telling us was just like effectively RPE kind of targets, like how hard, and, and those were also obviously adjusted for the, the, the duration or the distance that we were going to be traveling for any given effort, um, which I think translated well for us at the time. And so I agree. I mean, I think that it's definitely been the hot topic recently. And I worry that there are some people who are talking about it. And as soon as, you know, they, they basically just latch onto the, the phrase zone two and like turn their brain off when there's a lot of complexity to this. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Although to be fair, talking about Mets and Met minutes and stuff like that is, you know, not not great either. So I kind of I'm gonna maybe give these folks a little bit of a pass here. But uh, okay, so we talked about different ways to discuss intensity. Again, you can use RPE, you can use a three zone model or five zone model. You can use heart rate stuff within those things um, to sort of hone in on uh, on those different zones. Um, the next thing we got to talk about is the distribution of training. So like how much of your training should be in a particular zone, how much of it should be easy, how much of it should be hard and whatnot. And I reviewed a ton of data on this, including a bunch of different reviews that have been published almost every, it seems like every either five, five to 10 years, uh, on different cohorts of elite level performers. And so if the goal here is to improve cardiorespiratory fitness to the highest level, because we think, and we know, that there is a dose-dependent relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness, which can be measured by things like VO2 max, for example, and health trajectory, That's, that should be our goal. But when you look at all this data, it pretty much always shakes out to this 80-20 rule, whereas 80% of the, of the cardiorespiratory fitness exercise, the conditioning work, takes place in zone one of the three-zone model, and 20% of it is distributed between zones two and zone three. I will say that again. 80% of the training is in that zone one model or zone one phase of the three zone model and 20%, the other 20% is distributed between zones two and zone three, which effectively suggests that most of your training should be most of your conditioning training. If you want to improve cardiorespiratory fitness, the most is going to be done at a pretty easy pace. And some of it is going to be a bit harder. And this kind of flies in the face of this romanticization, romanticization of high intensity interval training. People are like, nah, it's got to be hard, balls to the wall, let's send it. And it's like, yeah, that, there's a time and a place for that, but it's going to be a smaller fraction compared to the low and slow stuff. The important thing here, based on what we just talked about, comparing and contrasting the three and the five zone model, is that that 80% should probably not be so easy that it doesn't even register as being difficult. It should probably be in zone two of the five zone model model or, you know, somewhere close to the upper end of zone one of the three zone model. So not quite light activity, but yeah, pretty moderate. Uh, and again, probably RP five, six type stuff that should be the majority of your training. And then the rest of it should be distributed between either zone two and zone three for, uh, the three zone model or zones three, four, and five of the five zone model. It's so interesting though. This is like remarkably similar across different sports different countries, different, you know, events. And you're like, you would think that these people, particularly since the sort of invention of interval training, which took place, I mean, A.V. Hill was doing this in the 20s. For example, Fartlek started, uh, which means speed play, uh, it started in the 
30s and 40s. It's like this stuff has been around for a long time. So it's not like, oh, high-intensity interval training is new. No, it's not new. It's been around for a while. And you would think that athletes, I mean, these people are in general willing to take PEDs to get a, a, a nominal benefit in a sport that doesn't pay any money. You don't think that they're trying to have the most optimal training methods that are available to them? They've been trying this stuff. And, and they, they all kind of come back to this 80-20 rule for the majority of their training was pretty remarkable to me. Uh, and then when I think about my own sort of lifting, if I'm making an analogy here, I think the majority of my training volume is done at a pretty low sort of uh, average intensity, somewhere in that, you know, maybe 70 to 80% range. Uh, that 80% of it, my, my total lifting is being done there with a pretty large proximity to failure. So not close to failure, like RP7, RP6, things in that range, maybe up to RP8. And a small amount, 20%, is a little heavier than that. And I think that that kind of transfers over, that, that kind of jibes with my experience. I don't know, Austin, what do you, what do you think about that sort of extrapolation there? I I agree. I think that I probably have an even more dramatic, uh, kind of discrepancy in that most of my training is, is on that lower intensity and further from failure. And my lower bound is probably lower than yours is. And my proximity to failure is probably further than yours is. And the amount of exposure that I have to the really high intensity stuff is also probably less than, than yours is. And we've kind of ended up in similar places somewhat independently, independently in terms of like, we're both doing our own thing, obviously. And we, we end up in similar places in terms of our adaptation and and performance across, you know, the main lifts in, in that sport. My experience in the pool for many years matched this as well. Most recently in the past several months, I've been doing a ton more conditioning on the rower on average, about five days a week or so. And naturally without explicitly planning it, it was like, four of these days are going to be low intensity, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes, an hour, or sometimes a little bit longer at relatively low heart rates, say in the, like the range of 115 to 130 beats per minute on average throughout the, the session. And then one of the days is going to be harder, you know, higher intensity, whether shorter intervals or sprints or something like that, which, you know, it's not, you know, exactly calculated by volume, but if you just look simplistically at like four days and one day, <laughs> that's 80, 20, there you go. So similar kind of things that we gravitate towards. And I think, there's a lot of reasons for this, but ultimately recognizing that, you know, all, across all these zones, you're, you, you know, you've spent a lot of time laying this out for people, but ultimately we're looking at a spectrum of the energy system uses that we laid out in the first podcast, the differences across that spectrum. And because adaptations tend to be specific um, to the way you're training, you know, this, and, and we're balancing that in that fitness fatigue model, what is the stimulus? What is the cost? I think what we've gravitated towards what you're describing in some of the data is in these lower zones namely this zone two, again, that's like super sexy at the moment is where we can get a pretty good training stimulus in that particular kind of level of energy production. You can do a lot of it, confer a ton of benefit in that range, and then a much smaller dose of exposure to the really high intensity stuff that's training, you know, not entirely different energy system, but also stimulating things in a slightly different way to get adaptations at that high top end as well, which is shockingly, you know, similar to how we describe our approach to, you know, strength training uh, as well. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think, you know, when we look at some of the data, because there's a lot of this stuff where we talk about zones and how it correlates to different markers of cardiorespiratory fitness or objective tests, like that 2K row uh, test, for example, those are done in, you know, high level athletes, people who are like doing a lot of endurance training, but the recreational sort of trainee kind of still seem to benefit from this type of split. The problem though, is that they miss the sort of target exertion level. Easy isn't as easy as it should be and hard isn't as hard as it should be. And it's like, if you're going to go down this route, 
and you're going to take the time to kind of map out a plan or use one of our programs that does that for you, um, the idea would be, well, let's actually do the thing then. Let's make sure that your zone two using the five zone model is easy enough. And let's make sure that when we have you do the high intensity interval training that you're really sending it. And uh, if it's not something you're able to do with your current sort of resources with respect to what types of exercise you can do or your current sort of fitness levels, then that requires some modification, again, to get the dose right so that you generate the, you know, benefits in cardiovascular fitness that we're actually chasing here. And, and I think you wanted to mention something on like, yeah, well, what about stuff that doesn't necessarily, like, what about zone one and the five zone model? What, yeah. <laughs> is that still useful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you laid out this idea of a lower range of the kind of RPE scale of about five, where we start viewing things as being kind of more useful in terms of the stimulus at the lower end and then pushing things to higher RPE targets for the, the higher intensity stuff and how we would distribute that. The, the question or the, the idea that I anticipate is like, if people are just going about their life doing general activity, their activities of daily living or taking, you know, walks that are not like really like pushing a borderline speed walking pace or just like general low level activity in day to day life is not worthless. It's just that it may not be the best way to balance the stimulus fatigue sort of thing for specifically cardiorespiratory fitness benefits, but moving around is good for you in a lot of other ways besides just the cardiorespiratory fitness benefit, right? So it could be for, you know, psychological stuff or metabolic stuff. Say you have diabetes and just moving around, even if it's not explicit conditioning, you know, compared to, you know, sitting for prolonged periods of time, movement is great for people, including those with, you know, acute pain, persistent pain, all sorts of other things that, you know, encouraging movement, even if it's not specifically something that you can log as like my conditioning training for the day. Yeah, I think, you know, this is one thing, out, uh, and this may be wrong, so just <laughs> caveat, <laughs> maybe wrong, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this because you see this, you know, there's a lot of push to get people to just walk more, right? And like from a public health messaging standpoint, I, I think that's fine. You know, the average person walks somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 steps a day. Uh, that's just kind of the average adult sort of amount of steps per day, a little bit less for p certain medical conditions, a little bit more for more active folks in general. But this idea, uh, particularly that's being messaged by what I would consider highly active individuals, folks in the fitness space, in the health space, they're like, to their audience, they're like, hey, walking is underrated. You just, hey, if you walk more, big benefit. I, uh, I think that, yes, that's better than not in general <laughs> from like a general like health promotion thing. But my, my take here is if you're going to spend the time doing something and you're amenable to maybe a more targeted approach I think you could spend that time more wisely to generate larger improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness without the risk or without with a lower risk of excessive fatigue from, I just walked 30,000 steps. And it's like, well, that's going to cost you something. And it's not maybe going to give you as much fitness adaptations as you'd like for that cost. It's the same thing as like going into the gym, lifting anything, doing any sort of resistance training is likely to be beneficial compared to not. But dang, if you were on a program that was intelligently like communicated, laid out, et cetera, progressively loaded, well, I think that's going to be a lot better. You think, uh, you think there's something to that? Yeah, I think that this kind of speaks to the idea that, you know, sweeping guideline recommendations are fine, but never great for an individual. And so getting a sense of who you're talking to, what their resources are, their motivation, their interests, their resources, their time, things like that is great to individualize a prescription. Um, but we got to start from somewhere. So yeah, I'm inclined to agree through that lens. Cool. All right. So just to summarize this section, uh, we can uh, rank intensity in a bunch of different ways. You can use RPE, you can use three zone or five zone model with or without heart rate data. Um, as far as distributing 
intensity uh, based on practices and those trying to max out cardiorespiratory fitness adaptations. That seems like the 80-20 rule, 80% easy, 20% hard, seems to be uh, kind of the ticket here, would stick that 80% closer to the top end of zone one or uh, zone two, um, if using the five zone model. So, um, that would be about RP five to six. Um, and then the hard stuff should be RP seven to eight or higher. Um, again, 80% in that five to six range, 20%, seven, eight or more. Uh, if you're going to try to predict your max heart rate, you can use the formula 208 minus 0.7 times age, or you can do a field test. If you're so inclined, you'll still have to measure heart rate while you're doing that. And the main thing here is keep the easy stuff easy and keep the hard stuff hard. If that becomes challenging, probably need to uh, change the programming up in a way that manufactures that sort of relationship. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Okay. Now it's time to talk about volume and duration. We talked about intensity. So the other big and, and distribution of that intensity, the next big 
uh, lever to mo- to pull to be able to modify the training dose for an individual is going to be the volume and the duration of activity. So as mentioned before, the current guidelines recommend that all adults complete some combination of at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity conditioning per week to reach a minimum of 500 to 1,000 met minutes per week. Again, 500 to 1,000 met minutes represents the sort of dose of conditioning training. This translates to about 20 to 30 minutes of conditioning per day, uh, provided that that conditioning is done at the correct intensity. Unsurprisingly, few people do this. Based on data collected from 2003 to 2005 in a nationally representative study of tens of thousands of adults, of adults wearing wearable accelerometers, so like you know a Fitbit or similar, uh, to track their activity, only 3.5% of individuals 20 to 59 years of age and 2.4% of those aged 60 years or older registered at least 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity per day at least five days per week. And less than 1% of adults registered 20 minutes of vigorous intensity activity on at least three days per week. Uh, Shocker. These guidelines didn't really do much to move the needle, but uh, they're still there. Uh, In the last podcast, we talked about the duration and so that's kind of where we start this thing here. We t- said on the last podcast, pretty much any duration of conditioning at a at the correct intensity would count, quote unquote, to accumulate uh, this sort of necessary conditioning for improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness and subsequently health trajectory. So a, whether it's one minute at a time, five minutes at a time, 10 minutes at a time, 15 minutes at a time or longer, all those bouts likely contribute to health promotion to similar degrees. Now, in saying that, I do not believe that one-minute doses are equivalent to 30-minute doses for improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness. If we're going to measure that by VO2 max, VO2 peak, changes in lactate thresholds, et cetera. And because I know the relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness, which can also be communicated as like exercise tolerance, so how intensive an activity can you actually uh, sustain on a graded exercise test, I would not recommend doing 30 sets of one minute, (laughs) 30 bouts of one minute activities compared to doing a 30 minute bout. I do not know where that optimization problem shakes out, but I also think you can look at sport and get some clues here and see what they're doing. And so in general, I would prefer that single sessions are done per day. And if it can't be a single session, it would be two sessions. And if it can't be two, then it's three. And you basically, you're kind of working your way down to like, well, what can the person actually do? Because something is better than nothing. However you get it in is better than nothing. But what's the best? And if there's a way to you know do the best and that's something that fits within your lifestyle and whatever, that's what I would choose. And so I think like, look, I've got 30 minutes of conditioning to do today. I would prefer you to do it in a single session. If it has to be two sessions, fine. If it has to be three sessions, fine. If it has to be 30 sessions, also fine. But I think you're gradually moving away from how can we actually maximize cardiorespiratory fitness adaptations the further you move away from the demands on the cardiorespiratory fitness sort of system. Um, It's the same thing with like strength training, right? In general, when I think about, okay, how would I optimally improve somebody's strength, their hypertrophy, um, their work capacity with respect to – lifting weights or, or tasks similar to that. I would like to do that all in one session. If it's a, if it needs to be split up into two sessions, um, okay. If it needs to be split, split up into three sessions, okay. And you can further like go further and further and further. And it's either some point it becomes impractical 
or, or, and, or it becomes less effective. And I don't, again, know where that balance is. I start thinking anything more than like, all right, we're not doing, we're not doing two days now. I, I start thinking like, nah, we're probably missing a little bit because you're no longer having to deal with the fatigue generated within the workout. And I think some of that fatigue generated within the workout actually contributes to the adaptations that we're actually seeking. Like if you don't generate any fatigue, then I don't know that the training stress that you've sort of try to impart upon yourself over in a given day is enough to really move the needle with respect to fitness adaptations. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. The, I mean, the other way to look at this too, is not just the, the, you know, fitting it into one session, but at a more granular level, if you think about what are the adaptations that you're trying to facilitate? So consider an example of somebody who's saying, I want to maximize my top end strength and say, you want to program them a session where they do six sets of three of a particular exercise. And they're like, Eh, I don't really have time for that. Can I just do one set of 18 and call it a day? It's like, you can, but you're not selecting for the same adaptations. And so this is with the conditioning piece. It's kind of the, uh, the converse to that where it's like, okay, we'd rather somebody do say 45 minutes, you know, of, of this, um, you know, uh, in intensity of conditioning. But if they're like, ah, I don't really have time for that. Can I just do, you know, four 10 minute sessions or something like that, or 11 and a half minutes, whatever the case is. It's like, well, you can, I'm not sure that it's going to be precisely selecting for the same sorts of outcomes that we're looking for. Um, although if, if, if the general idea that we're looking at is health-based, then fine. But performance-based, again, we're making a compromise there. So I kind of view that in a similar way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in general, would try to make sure that the duration is commensurate with the types of adaptations that you're trying to select for. And I think because we're trying to improve cardio respiratory fitness metrics that are most closely associated with prolonged efforts that <laughs> that would probably be sort of the best way to do it but again let's not let perfect be the enemy of good here um, with respect to total volume i think that the guidelines are probably an okay place to start for untrained individuals and that being something that generates either 500 to 1000 met minutes or again 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity conditioning per week plus or minus the combination of 75 to 150 minutes uh, of vigorous intensity conditioning per week. Uh, I think that's a fine target to aim for. And I think at that dose, we're not really concerned with an interference effect in untrained anyway, like untrained individuals. In trained folks who are previously done like no cardio at all, I think if you went from zero to that real quick, so a spinoff of Drake's song, Zero to 100, real quick. I think that can present problems just because the total training dose has changed significantly. And you have somebody who's fairly, I guess, sensitive um, to changes in training load because they're already doing so much, if that makes sense. Um, for a person who's untrained and you're like, well, how do I work this in? Like, how do I gradually get them up to this dose because you're you're doing a couple things here thing one there's a behavior change component to this you're like trying to get them to go from not being physically active at all to being very physically active uh and like let's make sure that i don't give them too much too high of a dose too quickly where then we're going to be way too fatigued the fitness adaptations are going to be sort of cloaked by fatigue and you know we might risk injury things of that nature i would aim to work them up to this sort of guideline level within four weeks so the idea is you'd start at like one to two sessions 20 to 30 minutes um, at like zone one or zone two, zone one, zone two, kind of on that borderline of the five zone model, and then add time and frequency 
over the course of the next few weeks. So if week one is one to two sessions of 20 to 30 minutes at RP, you know, sort of five or six, the next week would be 25 to 35 minutes. So something like that, maybe add it, maybe now it's two sessions for sure. And then the third week, maybe now it's three sessions of 25 to 35 minutes. And the idea is, again, you're going to try to get that 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity activity. I'd probably skip, hit, like high intensity interval training completely at this point. The main thing is if somebody's like, pardon my language, no shit doing high intensity interval training, that's going to have a pretty big fatigue cost, almost out of proportion to the potential fitness adaptations. doesn't mean hits off the table forever or for everyone. It's just at this particular point, they're not really well trained enough to not only to tolerate it, but also like thrive in that situation. The pretty, the, like my, my main sort of uh, caveat here would be if someone's only willing to do high intensity interval training, fine, we'll do it. I'll probably cheat them <laughs> in a way or like uh, uh, basically instead of it being a, this RP nine or 10 for this work interval, 20 second sprint, 30 second sprint, I'm going to call it RP seven or eight. And I'm almost banning them from a treadmill or like a sprint on flat ground, unless they have a long history of running to pull from, in which case they weren't untrained. And so that doesn't really make sense here. It's just that the risk of injury s- starts to get a little high when you start talking about all that ground reactive force, um, particularly in folks who are untrained. You're just, it's not that the the activity is inherently injur- injurious or, or risky. It's just that the, it's hard to dose. You're like, if you're getting one, one sprint, go do one sprint. Uh, okay. Your hamstrings are just not ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, would prefer sticking that zone one, zone two, kind of all that threshold RP five, six, um, for the five zone model, start at one to two sessions of 20 to 30 minutes per week, add time, uh, first that add frequency, like try to get up to that 150 to 300 minutes, uh, of moderate intensity conditioning. That's kind of where I would start and try to get up to the, the guidelines within about four weeks. After that, if somebody wants to start doing high intensity interval training, you can swap out a session or add a session depending on where you're at with respect to the guidelines. But, uh, again, would be cautious with not only the mode that you select, but also the intensity by which you start at. And so it's really going to be up to their personal preferences. Cause if you think about it, they're already doing some zone eight stuff with resistance training. Like we don't really need, you know, a, a lot of work on their sort of maximum speed at this particular point. We're just trying to get them moving. Uh, as far as well-trained folks, I think these people, particularly if they're already meeting the guidelines, if we're looking at like their health trajectory, I think that further improvements in their cardiorespiratory fitness is likely to, again, correlate with further improvements in their health. So they're likely going to need to be above the guidelines. I know that not much, many of our listenership is like, man, I'm maxing out the guidelines right now. So like this may not apply to some of them, but I know you and I both both are currently well above uh, the guidelines, both with respect to met minutes, both with respect to the current amount of like, duration, either 150 to 300 minutes or 75 to 150 minutes. But that's been a process. Like for me personally, that's been since November of 2021, having a like direct focus on improving my conditioning. And so I think if you look at met minutes, I'm close to that 2000 to 2500 met minutes per week sort of dose right now. And the whole idea is like, I want to get my cardiorespiratory fitness as high as possible without it compromising my strength at this particular point. That's a relatively new development because I, I do want to get as strong as possible by the end of October. But for like a general strength training, I think it's fine to have a compromise there. If it mm-hmm. takes 10% off your top end numbers, like, but your cardiorespiratory fitness is much, much higher, I think that's a good trade off unless maximum strength improvement is the only reason you get up out of bed in the morning and, <laughs> and gets you to the gym. And if that's the case, well, we might need to talk further about like 
hey, what do you want to be doing in 20 years from now, uh, for example? Because that extra 10% of strength is probably less correlated to your sort of health trajectory compared to uh, bigger improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness. But um, for those folks, if you're already like at the top end of the guidelines or whatever, you're like, okay, how do I then ratchet up my training dose in order to further facilitate more fitness adaptations? The intensities are already kind of set. We talked about, all right, 80-20 rule, talked about what that correlates to with respect to RPE zones uh, using both the three and the five zone model. So now the only lever to pull really here is how long or how much volume you're doing it for. And I think 10%, altering volume by 10% going up is probably a good rule of thumb and you can just do that by duration. That's kind of how I would uh, start with that. As far as folks who are, in fact, strength power focused, you got to meet coming up, for example, or you're testing your 1RMs, well, what's hap what happens with your sort of strength power focused training as you get closer to a test, as you get closer to a meet, yep, absolute intensity tends to go up. You tend to start lifting heavier and heavier weights because you're like, hey, I know maybe that 80-20 rule that uh, you could think about applying to resistance training uh, is kind of out the window. Um, now it's maybe 70-30, 60-40, a few weeks before the meet, maybe it's 50-50, you know, because you're like, I actually am okay with lifting a heavier weight, a higher proximity to failure because I need to hit these weights to be confident on the platform. Well, guess what happened to your training stress? It's gone up from resistance training. So what do you have to do? You're going to have to balance that by decreasing the training stress from your cardiorespiratory fitness training. And this in fact may drop to below the minimum guidelines as the test or the meet nears. And I've got a lot of clients, if, I, if I'm getting ready, they're getting ready to go to a meet, I'll drop their conditioning down to one or two times per week, 20 to 30 minute sessions, all in that sort of zone one or zone two uh, uh, range for the, of the five zone model, um, you know, two or three weeks out from the meet and keep them there. And if you're asking me, What's their cardiorespiratory fitness like at the meet compared to eight weeks prior to the meet? Well, it's a little lower. It's still enough for a powerlifting meet. It's still, you know, in a generally healthy range or whatever, but I'm compromising their total sort of physical fitness development so that they can go to a meet and do three things really well, squat, bench, deadlift. On the other hand, if you were endurance focused and you were getting close to like a 5K test or a mile or whatever, a half marathon, a obstacle course race or whatever, well, that 80-20 rule, again, it's going to start going 70-30, 60-40, 50-50 or whatever, and you're doing maybe more of it. So then what has to be ratcheted down? Your resistance training. So it's all just a balance. It's a big optimization problem that we're trying to solve based on the individual. How, what should the training dose be? How can we manipulate that via changes in volume, intensity uh, of both the resistance training and the cardiorespiratory fitness elements in order to balance the amount of fitness adaptations that we're producing to the amount of fatigue that we're creating. And so you can't put everything up to 11 at all times. I think people are looking for that, like, what is the golden ratio? Like, how do we do this? And it's like, just don't try. Because when you do, bad bad things in general are, are going to happen. Um, Austin, any any comments there? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think back to a lot of our our, our uh, prior experience <laughs> with other people and the kind of messaging that was put out about how everything should be really, really hard. And that is not only the most effective way to train, but the most virtuous way to train among other ridiculous claims. And it's just like, that's not how to get very good at these things. And, uh, 
I think there's a combination of research evidence. There's pragmatic kind of observational stuff of an oddly consistent, uh, you know, uh, a proportion of, of uh, you know, distribution and intensity and how this is done across multiple different sports activities, our own, our own experiences too. And so, yeah, I mean, in general, I'm inclined to agree. And I think that as uh, you, you put it very well earlier when you said that for most people, when they approach this kind of thing, their easy is not as easy as it should be and their hard is not as hard as it should be. And then once you combine those two things with the fact that the distribution is probably all off too, it's like, yeah, no wonder a lot of people hate this. You know, it's like, it feels really bad because it's like really hard, really unpleasant and you're doing your, your distributions all off. And so it's like, really, if you can make your easy stuff pretty easy and get, you know, in the, in that right range, it's a lot easier to actually do it and then uh, have a smaller dosage and exposure to the, to the harder stuff. Overall, it's just way more sustainable. And um, I think that's been both our experience with clients, with ourselves, you're describing it currently where your strength performance at the moment's super high, despite doing way more conditioning than you've done in the past. Um, so it can be done, uh, just figure out, you know, the intensity, the distribution and the volume that's right for the person. So it just comes down to dosage, which has been the overall message here. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll probably write uh, write something about this because there's a lot of numbers that we talked about or whatever. But I do think a sort of wrap up summary uh, is useful here. So first off, on part three here of our conditioning sort of series, this is episode 238. Most people need to do more conditioning. Effectively, if you're listening to this, uh, you might be that sort of two to three, maybe four percent of the population who's like meeting the current guidelines. Although I know a lot of lifter lifting centric focused or lifting focused people are not. But in general, most people need to do more conditioning. Uh, when saying that we should be doing concurrent training, which is the inclusion of resistance training to gain strength, hypertrophy, and power, combined with conditioning exercise to enhance cardiorespiratory fitness. That should be combined in a single program. That's called concurrent training. As far as intensity of the conditioning, it needs to be fine-tuned to arrive at the appropriate training stress and to avoid the interference effect. If we fine tune the intensity, we can kind of avoid that uh, interference effect almost entirely. So would use either RPE to sort of moderate that. Uh, again, RP five to six would be in that sort of uh, moderate intensity uh, zone. That would be the easy stuff. Um, or you can use the three zone, five zone models uh, with or without heart rate stuff to sort of go get a little even more granular. I think if you're going to use heart rate data, you just use the five zone stuff. You can just ignore the three zone thing entirely. As far as the distribution, again, 80% of your conditioning work should be done in that sort of easy zone, RP5 to RP6, zone two of the five zone model, that'd be fine. 20% can be spread on the higher zones, higher intensity stuff. And if you do that, there's a little risk for the interference effect. So long-term strength and hypertrophy outcomes are probably not affected in most individuals uh, who are uh, participating in concurrent training and the opposite, you know, sort of interference effect for, uh, cardiorespiratory fitness adaptations when they incorporate resistance training is almost not seen at all. In fact, you seem to see an even bigger benefit in their VO2 max, uh, if they incorporate resistance training rather than skipping it. So if you're an endurance athlete and you happen to somehow get on the barbell medicine podcast and you made it through this hour and 20 minutes or whatever it is, Hey, do some lifting too. Uh, as far as the guidelines go, they're a great target for untrained or insufficiently active folks with respect to volume, but more trained individuals or fo people focused on higher endurance performance are likely going to need more. That's the same thing we see with the resistance training guidelines. They're currently at twice per week of resistance training. And it's like, yeah, if you want to be the strongest or, uh, or gain the most amount of muscle mass, uh, yeah, you're probably going to need more. That kind of makes sense. And in any case, whether it's resistance training, whether it's conditioning training, 
that needs to be progressively loaded in order to match the current fitness levels. That doesn't mean it gets any harder. In fact, it should be about the same level of hardness. It's just going to be more. As your fitness improves, you'll have to do more. More what? Either more volume, slightly higher intensity. So when you get stronger, you lift heavier weights. As you get more and more cardiorespiratory fitness, you get to go longer, you get to go faster or whatever. It's the same level of hardness. And at the end of the day, the same thing we say at all of our programming-related podcasts, we need to adjust these parameters as necessary in order to improve the selected fitness adaptations. In this case, cardiorespiratory fitness, strength, et cetera, in order to maximize the return on investment from exercise. And because individuals are going to individual we need to adjust things iteratively based on the individual response. Austin, any more parting words? No more parting words. Go do your conditioning, folks. Do your conditioning. All right. So that's a wrap on part three on a three-part conditioning series. If you haven't checked out the first two parts, check out episode 236 and 237. Those are linked in the description below. Again, you can join us for a live in-person learning event. we got our super seminar coming up in LA. We've got our traditional health and performance seminar coming up in Sacramento. And then for Australian folks, we'll be there in January. Again, all linked in the show notes or description, however you fancy that. But, uh, Special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for uh, indulging me on this three-part series and for joining us on this podcast. Uh, Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said.
done. 